0: Alright guys, today we got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Kasim Hafiz. He's featured in the 2020 documentary, Never Again. So that documentary seeks to educate others on the horrors and consequences of anti-Semitism. So this film follows the journey of a Holocaust survivor, actually a guy that was sent to Auschwitz at the, at the age of 14, a guy named Irving Roth and a former radical Islamist, and that is Kasim, as they seek to leave behind a legacy of love over hate. And so it's a crazy documentary. Obviously guys, the, the documentary Never Again will be in the show show notes for you to check out. But I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Kasim because even from the very beginning, this is a guy that now lives in America and he absolutely loves America, but his family's from Pakistan. He grew up in the UK, moved to Canada at one point and then came to America. And he has a deep and abiding patriotism for this country. And he said something interesting at the beginning of our interview. He said, you know, growing up in the UK, I never really felt British, but having only lived in the U.S. for for a few years, like I'm so patriotic and I love the U.S. He's got the American flag tattooed on his arm and he showed it during the interview. Such a, a fun interview. Well, not a great, you know, fun, you know, subject matter necessarily, but. This is a guy growing up in the UK that was radicalized at one point so he would go back and visit Pakistan he was radicalized by the BDS movement, the anti-Israel movement spent a lot of time talking about that in this particular podcast but there were some very interesting things that led to him really considering his worldview and considering you know what he was doing with himself because he was literally you know in training to become is an Islamic fundamentalist terrorist and to kill innocent Westerners. And so that was something that that he was training to do, but his life got turned completely upside down and he eventually became a follower of Christ. And we literally get into all of that in this interview. I I mean, I love it. There was so much there. I was just sad we were running out of time towards the end because I was like, I had so many other questions for him. So maybe we'll have him back on in the future to talk about that. But a tremendously valuable conversation. I know you guys are going to love it, but without further ado, let's get into it. Kasim Hafiz, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast.
1: No, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I'm pretty pumped about this. I'm excited.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to have you on. So, uh, obviously I talked a little bit about this in the introduction, but you grew up in the UK, but your parents are from Pakistan. And so there are some, you know, things in terms of what we think here stateside as to what that looks like. Cause we've heard a lot about, you know, those entities and different people from different countries, not really integrating into UK culture and all these different things. But I mean, you, you live that you grew up kind of right. steeped in that over there in the UK. So talk to me a little bit about your upbringing.
1: Sure. So you actually, uh, touch on an important topic uh, and identity wise when it comes to nationalities I'm kind of all over the place so yeah so yeah my so my parents uh came from Pakistan I grew up in England and you c- it's kind of accurate and that was one of the most interesting things for me moving to the US so predominantly I grew up in a predominantly Muslim Pakistani community and I think that's kind of common for immigrants anywhere especially when the culture is so different and the, and the language mm-hmm. is different but there has been this in the UK, especially, actually, let me, let me back that up, actually. All right. Americans, I love this country, much to my wife's amusement. My wife is American, and she's always amused because I am so patriotic. I mean, I've got the American flag on my forearm. I mean, it, it's, it's a thing. And my reason for that is because I've only been in the US for four years, five years, but I feel American. Like, this feels like home. There's no part of me where I'm like, am I really American? Am I not? Growing up in Britain, even though I was born there, I never really felt British. Mm-hmm. I identify more with being Pakistani. Because in America, and it drives me insane, so many Americans have this perception that we are the greatest evil in the world. Like, genuinely, the way Americans look at their own country is from this perspective of really privileged ignorance, that they've never been anywhere else. So they feel feel that America is so racist. America is like, look, I've lived it. It's not. And that's the thing. In Britain and much of Europe, unless there is a perception that to be European, you have to be white. And that is within Europe. And Mm -hmm. that's what I grew up around. So I identified more with being Pakistani than British, even though I never lived in Pakistan. Like I'm British, you know, for my accent, I'm I'm British. And, you know, I always give people this statistic. If you want to see that in practical terms, don't take my word for it. How many Muslims, Pakistani Muslim, Bangladeshi Muslims, how many of those Muslims in Europe went off to join ISIS? A lot. How many from America and Canada went off to join ISIS? Some did, but a small number. How Mm -hmm. many enlist in the British military? Again, the last time I checked, it was less than a 1,000. How many Muslims are serving in the American military? A lot. Like, it's, it's a thing. There is no, there's no debate for a lot of Americans, uh, Muslim Americans about joining the military, regardless of the background. So it's a huge difference, massive. And I think many Americans don't understand this because they live in this bubble and believe whatever Instagram meme they read. But for me, so straight away growing up, I feel isolated from the very country that I call home. I don't feel part of it. And that, that creates a lot of problems.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about that because I was going to be giving you the breaking news that, Hey, Kasim, why are you here in the U S we're the worst of all the countries in the world. We're the most racist. We're the hardest to get along with, but I've never really thought about it in terms of what people think in the UK. So you're unique in that you grew up as a Brown person, as they would call you, even though that's one of the dumbest things you could characterize somebody as it's like, Hey, look what shade of color you are. But So as a Brown person growing up in the UK, but then coming over here to the U.S., I got to say, I'm a little bit surprised at how paid patriotic you are about the u.s but you said something that was very interesting so growing up in the uk you never felt british but you've been in the u.s for a few years and you're like you're sold out for america take me into that a little bit more because i'm a very patriotic american and i'm unapologetic about that call me whatever you want to call me christian nationalist call me, call me any of those things i'm like great keep all of those those labels on me i love them but tell me a little bit more about that because i don't i don't know that i've ever heard it couched that way
1: right so uh, so so before I moved to the US, I lived in Canada and Canada was home for me. Loved it. Met my wife. She is from Florida originally. She said, there is no chance I'm living in a place where it snows nine months a year. Like that was, <laughs> yeah. and I did not want to move here. Like I'm full cards on the table. I was like, I'm not moving. I moved. Um, but, and it was literally from day one, like, cause I struggled to connect with the US initially because I had a perception of it like many people do, especially in europe the europeans have i'm talking broad strokes this very arrogant like we're so kind of intellectual and so tolerant right. it's like, i live there i'm good i your tolerance nearly caused me to kill other people um we'll get to that but so yeah, yeah. it's what america represents like genuinely and, I, and it may sound kind of you know, very philosophical. or But what America represents is incredible, like genuinely. And you see it every day. You turn off the TV for like five minutes and all of the trash about all the negative things happening, you are seeing diverse communities. And again, like I hate using to like diverse communities, but you're seeing people just living their life. You're seeing, you look at, I kind of have a book with the, uh, it has everyone who's ever been awarded the, medal of honor you look through that you see the true face of america Mm -hmm. and the true face of america isn't one color it isn't and i don't need to and this is one of the things i love about america going beyond what it stands for how it came into existence all these things i love like George washington is one of my heroes but the one thing i love about america is there is uh, there is not among the normal people that i meet People don't care what your color is or what your accent is or what whatever. The racism that I've experienced here, and look, where there are people, there's always going to be racism. That's a fact of life. Like mm-hmm. it's just the racism I've experienced is from people who are so arrogant and feel that they're above it. From the people Mm -hmm. who criticize everyone else for being racist, the people who in the most most broad strokes and again, not getting political, but the people who will say, well, Republicans are racist, those kind of people who's like racism of low expectations and racism of because you're brown, you know, I need to hold your hand almost is what I've experienced.
0: Yeah, it's so patriarchal and dude, you can get political, you can get philosophical, you can get however you want to get on this podcast. And I'm trying not to blow up my own interview because I want to talk a lot about the documentary and a lot about kind of some other things. But you mentioned George Washington there. So yeah. if you've read anything about George Washington, you realize that he is just, he was just an incredible, incredible human. But what do you think about these modern ignorant Americans that look back on a George Washington or a Thomas Jefferson or a Theodore Roosevelt or any of these types of people, they demand that they have their universities named after them changed, that their statues be torn down, that Mount Rushmore be taken down because I'm sure they have a problem with Abraham Lincoln too. Like for you, be, having family from Pakistan, growing up Muslim, going up, In the UK, moving to North America and then specifically landing in the United Uh, States—you know, I've been here my entire life. It seems crazy to me that you can go get a useless degree and then all of a sudden tell me that I shouldn't be proud of my forefathers. But for you, as an outsider, that's now an insider. What do you think about all that?
1: So stupid. Like literally, it's the dumbest crap I've ever seen. It's judging people from 200 years ago about how we think the world should be now. It's dumb. It's like if you were around in 1776, you wouldn't be saying half of the stuff you're saying now. Like it, and it's so it's stupid. Like maybe in 50 years people will look back at us and go, "Wow, you guys were really cool with buying stuff from China while they were doing all this awful stuff to their own people. You guys are a disgusting yeah. generation." Well, it's everybody wants to be so it's a, and it's it's not even activism. It's like slacktivism. It's like, I felt uniquely British the last week when the queen died. Surprised me too, to be honest. But like, right. everybody like, well, she was responsible for this. It's like, please shut up. Like genuinely, what are you talking about?
0: Yeah, I couldn't believe that they use that as a chance to dunk on colonization or on slavery and all that. It's like, um, hey dummy, what country was the first country in the history of, Of recorded humanity to get rid of the slave trade. Do you remember what country that was? Yeah, it was Britain. Okay. So let's like, let's stop with all this nonsense. And anyway, I don't want to get too far into that rabbit hole because I do want to get into the the main thrust of what we're going to be talking about today. So for you, you have a very unique story. Obviously you've had a very circuitous route, even just getting to this country, but you used to be an anti-Semite. Right. And so that would is as you would describe it, a very hateful ideology. So for you, I guess, first of all, let's define terms. Not everybody knows what anti-Semite is. They don't know why. Why does Semite mean Jew and why is it anti and blah, blah, blah. So define what that means. But then for you, where did that that hateful ideology come from?
1: So the, the term comes from, I believe it's a German scientist, you know, our good friends, the Europeans, who to make Jew <laughs> hatred more scientific. So it's very specific because you always hear, hear when we talk about and when I've talked about anti-Semitism, there'll be someone from an Arab background, and go, well, we're both Semites. This term is very specific. All right. You know, to quote a good friend, it's not all about you. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's very specific. Hatred of the Jews, treating Jews differently, double standard, all the kind of, you know, whatever you involve with bigotry or, or racism of anything towards a particular group, specific towards The jews is what anti-semitism is uh and yeah that 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 was part and parcel of who i was for a long time
0: yeah and so for you i guess where did that start like so was that like a family thing because i do remember uh in the documentary that we'll talk about here in a second and just knowing a little bit about your story that you growing up as a muslim in the uk that you were influenced almost like it was almost thrust upon you that hey you're a victim Like, hey, hey, you know, Kasim, I don't know if you know this or not, but but you're a victim and you should you should think that way and you should treat yourself that way. But what that victim ideology created for you was a little bit of this circular logic saying that it's it's basically the Jews that are the reason why you're having this plight. So I guess talk about that victimhood ideology and how that kind of fed your anti-Semitism.
1: Sure. So, yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a predominantly Muslim Pakistani neighborhood. And again, I think it's very common with immigrants anywhere in the world where there are always like growing pains coming to a new society, which is so different. Like my grandparents didn't come with PhDs. They were manual workers and, you know, working factories and stuff. So you're not going to instantly live in the best neighborhood. It's just part of life. But it is what it is. Um, But these groups and people, what they did was go, well, you're a victim of Western society like and if you look at that as a as as a statement what the heck does that even mean like genuinely what does that mean it's like when yeah. i hear people say america is racist the landmass 300 million people like what does that right. mean? like wh- yeah who are you talking about exactly right that's a, so you hear those statements and what is and i still see it today i mean in, in all over you have the idea that okay there's is an issue and those issues could be for whatever reason you find someone to blame who is a they it's a group mm-hmm. it's it, uh, the jews like what does that mean every single yeah like this
0: this nameless would. faceless non-specific entity kind of a deal
1: right and i genuinely believe that's very intentional because that way you can never address the roots of your victimhood because who do you mm-hmm. like could I could I speak to, you know, Mr. The West? Like, it, 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 there's no way to address that victimhood. So you're then stuck in this cycle of hopelessness and anger and you are so easy to be manipulated. And I mean, we've seen that in the last few years. Like, it's so easy. It's, it's kind of scary.
0: When it it starts with you othering people, because obviously if you spent any time looking at the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, the easiest thing to do to start out those regimes and to have this authoritarian or totalitarian top down thing is to other a particular group of people, whether, you know, uh, whether it's Pol Pot in Cambodia or, you know, Stalin in the Soviet Union or Hitler in in Germany, obviously, like that's always something you do is you other a group of people and that always leads to genocide. So we really need to get into this documentary called Never Again, because, and, you know, I wanted to set up kind of your background and everything, because all of that is a major through point of this documentary. But let's just start, you know, basic, basic, because you are one of the stars of that film. What is this documentary about? And I guess, how did you specifically get involved? And then then we'll start going through it.
1: Sure. So... It's essentially two stories which kind of interweave into one. Irving Roth, who was a friend who sadly passed away a few years ago, was a Holocaust survivor, and me. And basically what we looked at was, okay, Irving survived the Holocaust, one of the worst manifestations of anti-Semitism. And there is a tendency, and you know, recent polling has shown how little people know about the Holocaust in 2022, um, mm-hmm. there is a, a a tendency to look at the Holocaust as over there, as, as something over there that happened and it's in the past. And then you look at me, who was born in the West, educated in the West, but I had these same views to the point where I wanted to kill Jews. Like I wanted to physically murder people. I wanted to damage the West, you know, and my anti-Semitism and anti-Western, anti-Americanism were all wrapped into one. So we're sharing those two journeys and basically how... I came out of that and what changed and as I see the message and, and, you know, it's one that there is hope. Um, So that's kind of the core of the film, I guess.
0: Okay. So I appreciate you giving us that idea. So obviously you just kind of like mentioned it as if you were ordering, you know, at a restaurant, but you were at the point where you were essentially training to kill non-Muslims right and so that, that that's one thing so so take me through that a little bit because it's one thing and then obviously there is a delineation between uh Muslims that don't feel the need to do any of the things in the ninth surah of the Quran they don't feel any need to kill the infidel or tax people or you know chop off limbs or or any of those types of things but at some point if if we can use such a broad term you were radicalized into right. thinking that hey you're not just a practicing Muslim that that prays and you know does does all the things that a Muslim would do but that you need to train to actually do for Allah what he calls you to do and to basically do violence upon the Western world if I could speak about it so broadly. So that's a really really broad way to lead into a discussion like that, but take me through that because they, you don't just woke wake up one day and think, hey I, you know I'm thinking about becoming a suicide bomber or hey, I'm thinking about you know taking a bunch of people out with this attack in this particular place. So walk me through how you got to that point.
1: Sure. So like we did discussed earlier about the victimhood, so you're stuck in this circle of hopelessness mm-hmm. and anger and that just continues to build and with everything you see, you which you, i would, you know what i'm gonna start, not everything, everything you're fed because it isn't it's not your the, these things are intentional mm-hmm. and you know what was really interesting and this was years back so it's become a bigger issue now the use of i'm just gonna use the term fake news essentially because that what it that's what it was you yeah. know you're you're shown images of things and told this is happening in palestine this is this is what america is doing in iraq And 99.9% of the time, it's all fake and it's all pulled from somewhere else. But you don't know that. I mean, mean, before social media, it was just flyers. Now it's social media, so it's much more widespread. What does that do? It takes the already victim mindset you have, the anger you have, and it's weaponizing it even more because now the people that are oppressing you are these awful child killers. Mm. So you're stuck in this box of hopelessness. And then these extremist groups, whoever they may be, al-Qaeda, ISIS today, they create the problem, but then they present themselves as the solution. And and it's as simple as that. You're a victim. Everything is hopeless. The only way that we can fight back is by using violence. And one of the most dangerous things when you get into the victim mindset is the that's bad, but. And what I mean by that is, like 9-11, when 9-11 happened, I was like, that's awful, but I can understand why it happened. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're, It's this, yeah, innocent people died, families have been destroyed, people who had nothing to do with anything were murdered. And you're like, well, I, I see the bad of it, but at the same time, America kind of deserved it. And once you cross that line, it's very easy to now start walking to the line of wanting to take action yourself.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a crazy thing to hear you reflect on it. Now I can even just hear it in your voice. It's almost like you're shocked that you, you ever had that thought and kind of went through it because especially when we just had the anniversary here recently, this will be coming out a few weeks later, but we just had the anniversary, 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And to know that there are people around the globe that celebrate that day, like that's one of my angriest days of the year. And I make sure I watch the documentaries. I watch the planes. I watch the people jumping to their death. And I watch the, you know, the people mourning for their loved ones, because it's like, I don't ever want to lose that stinging feeling feeling because I've got two young boys that this is going to be like a distant memory to, it's not even like a distant memory, but like whenever I was growing up, it's about as far away as the moon landing was for me. And like, that's, that's how far it was. It was like, that may as well have been like centuries ago. And so I want to make sure I still feel that, but this obviously leads to a discussion about Islam Versus radical Islam. So we're constantly taught about radical Islam, but then, you know, I've read and, and studied some of the works of a guy like Nabil Qureshi, who, you know, was a Muslim that became a Christian apologist and those types of things and hearing him kind of dig in to things like, um, like what what's being said in the Quran, like what's being said in the ninth surah, which I've already uh, talked about, which is the bloodiest surah of the Quran and the least abrogated. It was the last one that we got from the the so-called Prophet Muhammad. So talk to me a little bit about that because I think it's way more appropriate to say something along the lines of that's not extremist Islam, that's not radical Islam. It's more like fundamentalist Islam. But I I, I know that words are important, so I don't want to you know describe something inaccurately. So you you've lived that world, so take me through that.
1: So that's an important point to bring up. So if we look at the Middle East, if we look at Islam, there is a, a huge problem in the Western world while we, where we look at the world the way we want to see it rather than the reality. And you know that you can talk about foreign policy, other faiths, other cultures, whatever. And I think that's the, the, and the situation when we look at Islam. Look, there are issues within Islam which are fundamentally problematic. To, be, to put it really diplomatically, there are core texts which say some horrific things. And these are things that need to be addressed by the Muslim community. And there, there are things that we can't pretend don't exist because it helps no one. And what is really important to bear in mind is this. When we think about the word reformation, because people always say, you know, Islam needs to reform. Mm-hmm. I've heard that for, for a long time if you think about reformation in a christian sense it normally drives the faith forward in a way it looks at the time it looks at scripture and as long as it you know keeps to scripture it it moves things along i guess if you look at reformation within islam and you can go back a thousand years every reformation movement has been to drive islam backwards not forward and what i mean that is literally geographically They look at the world, be it the Muslim Brotherhood, be it the Wahhabis, be it ISIS, they look at the world and go, look, perfect Islam was in 7th century Arabia with Muhammad. Everything new is problematic, and it's not true Islam. And, you know, people always, I think one of the biggest phrases which drives me insane is, well, they're not real Muslims. Mm. Firstly, it's incredibly arrogant for a Western professor who isn't Muslim, and, you know, his his experience of islam is you know doing a gap year in syria like that doesn't make you an expert and two islam is very strict about in muhammad's own words that you can't call somebody a non-muslim Like you simply can't can't to call someone a non-muslim when they when there isn't 100 proof they are non-muslim makes the person who said it non-muslim like that's islamic doctrine so there are there are the way Islam is set up with the Quran, with the Hadith, it makes it very forward, very difficult for it to move forward. And it makes those key points, you know, calling Christians and Jews, you know, pigs and monkeys, talking about slaying the unbelievers, talking about so many things ingrained to the faith. And how that gets addressed, I, I genuinely don't know. I don't have an answer. And many Muslims live without knowing that without knowing those parts of the, 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 the faith, because the majority of Muslims aren't Arab. The Quran's in Arabic, and Muslims are required to read the Quran in Arabic. So then you're going on someone's interpretation, translation of it, and some won't ever read the whole Quran. So, but I, I think you raise an incredibly valid and true point. These are fundamental to the faith of Islam. You know, it, it's, and if you look at the spread of islam you know it wasn't there wasn't a, it wasn't like there was a paul going around the world as this missionary spreading the good news it was spread by military conquest and that was by muhammad's closest companions you know the people mm-hmm. who you know the equivalent of you know if you're saying like the disciples they lived with him they you know ate with him and they were the closest to him and they led these wars of conquests in what they saw as non-Muslim lands. So these, these are fundamental issues that need to be addressed. And they're fundamental issues that we do no one a service, neither in the Muslim world or non-Muslim world, by pretending that they don't exist and using terms of such as not real Islam and, and, and things like that.
0: Well, Kasim, you, you bring up a lot of things that the majority of people in the world don't know. They don't know that there's a Quran and then there's the Hadith, which are basically like the writings that came after, which are a lot of the traditions that were written down. There's a bunch of them. Uh, some right. are nonsense. Some are, are considered to be like, basically right up there with the Quran. Yes, you're not right. allowed to read the Quran in anything other than Arabic. Otherwise, you're not actually reading the, the actual Quran. And just, right. I think there's, a, there's an overwhelming ignorance from people as to what's actually even said. So when you see some, you know, all up person on the news quoting something from the Quran that sounds super peaceful. It's like, yeah, but all that was abrogated, right? Basically, right. you know, the, the, the prophet right. said, yeah, all that stuff I said back in the day. Yeah. I didn't really mean any of that happy stuff. Uh, you know, right. let, let's get to kind of what we're talking about now. So you brought up a lot of important things and, and we don't have a whole lot more time to go into the parts of Islam, but one thing that was interesting in the documentary never again is that you were on a trip back to Pakistan and you got to see a Muslim fundamentalist terrorist group, right up close and personal, and that was seemingly a turning point for you. And I guess take us through that because you know most people will never get to experience such a thing. But it seemed natural for you to kind of be attracted to what this group was doing. So, what was the group? What were you doing with them? What What did all that look like?
1: Sure. So I went back to Pakistan uh, two thousand to see family. There was nothing, no sort of radical plan there, and. If you think about my mentality as I'm a victim, Islam and Muslims being persecuted by the West, it's all hopeless and then you see this terrorist group who are very, you know, loud about what they believe, you know, they have literature and posters with the, the American flag on fire, the Israeli flag on fire, you know, captions such as you know, destroy the unbelievers, etc., etc., you know, have, proudly displaying their weapons. You look at that from the mindset that I'm in, and it's almost empowering. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at the group of of Al-Ashkara who are a Pakistani-based terror group. They were responsible for the Mumbai attacks uh, many years ago. So you look at it, and then, again, I looked at Al-Ashkara and was like, well, you know, they've committed terror attacks which killed civilians. But you make the justification, you go, yeah, that's bad. But when you see what they're fighting for, you know, the greater good, the ends justify the means. So it was empowering. And when I came back to the UK, I was wanted to know more about them. I wanted to kind of adopt that mentality. And you know, I went in 2000, 911 11 happened a year later, and it further reinforced my this attitude that the only way to make a difference, the only way to be heard was through violence. I mean, in 2000, 2001, you also had the second Intifada happening in Israel with suicide bombs, et cetera. So it just reinforced this fact that violence is the only way and you know, i cringe saying this violence is the only way language that these people understand because that's how i saw it it was us against them in these very black and white terms
0: well and it's It's such a unique thing that you experienced and that you went through, but obviously we're on the other side of that now. And and I don't want to give away too much from the documentary because I want to make sure you guys check it out. It will be in the show notes so you can check out the documentary never again. But there was a book that you got a hold of that really was a a red pill moment for you. And that book was the case for Israel by Alan Dershowitz. And so he's a world famous attorney and certainly famous here in the United States of America. But that was a book that somehow you got a hold of. You can take us through how you got a hold of it. But again, you were steeped in this anti Semitic, anti Jewish, anti Israel, um, you know, BDS type, you know, rhetoric. And maybe you can give us a little bit. I'm I'm packing a lot of stuff into one question, but give us an idea of what the the BDS movement is and kind of the rise of that in, in Europe and America. But then make sure we get to the case for Israel with Alan Dershowitz and kind of what that book did for you.
1: Sure. So so BDS stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. It's a movement which has grown very popular, especially on American campuses and even in facets of the government which say that America and and whoever need to boycott Israel, divest from Israel, and sanction Israel as a means to put pressure on Israel to essentially cease to exist. Um, And this is the nefarious thing about it because it's packaged in this. This is about justice and human rights, when it's not. It's simply about weak. It's to weaken Israel. It's to weaken Israel economically. It's to weaken Israel militarily. And the ridiculous thing about BDS is, as much as they say they care about the Palestinians, BDS has essentially put Palestinians out of work. It has made it, there was the, the soda stream factory, which employed a lot of Palestinians. A lot of Palestinians worked there because the wages were better than working for Palestinian companies. And it moved into moved territory where it was because bds protested and said it was in disputed territory and a lot of palestinians lost their job but somehow for you know the latte sipping activists sitting in boston that is a victory for the palestinians it it is it's and that's what so much of the activism is so narcissistic and just so all about them rather than how does this help the the core the, the issue how does this essentially how does this make the world safer and how does it create an environment where peace can flourish? And BDS mentions nothing about Palestinian terrorism. It doesn't talk about, you know, the daily attempts by Palestinian terror groups to murder Israelis. That is apparently not anything they care about.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so for me, you know, steeped in this again, Israel and the Jews became really my kind of focus. Because it, it's seen as a two-step plan almost, you know, and the Iranian leaders say it best. They see Israel as the little Satan that they need to wipe out first, and then America is the big Satan. Um, so I came across this book called The Case for Israel when I was ready to go back to Pakistan and join a terror group. And I, I just found it at a bookstore. And I saw it, and I was kind of blown away from a, I couldn't believe someone would write a book like this. Like, for me, Israel was like the new Nazis. And again, I had been in my own echo chamber of everything I Believe was just being validated by my group of friends and everyone around me. So I buy this book with this arrogance of I know the truth. This is just going to show me what these people believe and how wrong they are. And it had the opposite effect. It it essentially caused a crack in the glass. Like I had this Mm -hmm. this glass of my truth. (laughs) Let's be my truth, uh, which isn't the truth, and. This posed questions which I never come across, and they were very basic things, like the idea that the Jewish people have had a presence in the Holy Land for thousands of years, that Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish world, that in 1948, you know, the Zionists accepted every peace agreement, every partition plan. It was the Arabs who tried to destroy them. And these things were completely alien to me. But you don't read one book and go, I got it wrong, after you know, you are looking to murder people but that sent me on this journey to essentially prove this wrong but it, inadvertently I then came face to face with the actual reality
0: and so that journey actually took you to Israel and you know you were there basically to confirm your priors about Israel that it was a evil place filled with evil people and then you get there and it wasn't like that and I've never been to Israel it's certainly on my list but uh, Talk about your experience in Israel, but then specifically, you had a very unique experience when you went to the Western Wall for the first time. So, take us through that.
1: So, what stood out about Israel initially was how normal it was. That <laughs> sounds really strange, but you have images of war zones and all these kind of strange things. Um, but it was fairly normal. And Just looking around, you know, there are people who are visibly Jewish and Muslim and, you know, it's one of the only places in the world that, you you know, you'll still see like monks walking around in Jerusalem or, you know, Greek Orthodox priests with full garb. So that was really interesting to me, just just seeing that. And the normality and just the day-to-day was kind of shattering everything I I had been told and believed because, you know, people to this day call Israel an apartheid state where, you know, there is this segregation or you know they call israel racist which you know is it seems to be the thing nowadays if you want to discredit somebody or basically take away any any right for them to speak or be heard accuse them of racism regardless of it's proven or unproven you know you throw those words out and then and that's it so seeing that was impactful just talking to people but you know for me what i always say is the turning point was at the western wall i go to the western wall not really knowing any what it was but i'm like i don't know how this works you know like at this point i'm a muslim and you know i go to the western wall i kind of just imitate people around me and like put my hand on the wall or forehead it really was a moment of clarity it was this moment where i was able to kind of shut out the outside noises and step back and go, look, here you are in Jerusalem. You're in the the center of the Jewish world. You're in a a Jewish state. You're in Israel, this country that you hated, this country that when people were getting killed in terror attacks, you essentially celebrated. Inside, you were celebrating, And it was that moment where I thought, after experiencing everything and being there for a few days, how have I got to this point? How growing up, in the west in the british education system have i got to a point where i one was celebrating the murder of people who've done nothing to me at all and two wanting to now kill these same people men women and children like that's not a question of there's something wrong with your moral compass that's a question of your moral compass no longer exists uh, And that was, that was jarring. And that really was, you know, I would say the turning point if there was a singular turning point.
0: Yeah. And the thing about it, Kasim is, you know, when you look back on life, most of us have gradual turns in our life. Like a lot of us don't have those big light bulb moments, or it was at that moment I knew I was going to be a doctor, or it was at that moment that I knew that she was the one, or like, we don't really have that. That's more Hollywood. That's more like television type thing. But for you, I mean, that, That wasn't just something cool to put in a documentary. That was really a thing that kind of led to the opening of your viewpoint on the state of Israel and the the Israeli people, but even your own faith. And I want to get to your own faith here in a little bit, but I, I guess in general. As Americans, we know, uh, you know, if you're a patriotic American, and certainly if you're on the right, you know that you're supposed to support Israel, but we don't know why the state of Israel is so important to the Jewish people and really to the world overall. I I remember uh, talking with a guy, I believe his family uh, was from Pakistan, uh, but he's here in America. And he was like, you know, cause I mentioned, I was like, you know, yeah, I support Israel. And he's like, why would you support Israel? I'm like, well, you know, they're the only uh, democracy over there in the Middle East that that we can support fully, and not real think we're going to get you know screwed on the back end. And he's like, yeah. why would we need another democracy in the Middle East? Why is that a good thing? Like, why should we support that? As we're saying it in a pizza place in the middle of Oklahoma, where we're not worried about anybody coming in and trying to you know carpet bomb the place or wearing yeah. a, a, a you know S vest or something like that. And so, you know, take us through, I guess, why the state of Israel is so important to the Jewish people and the world overall.
1: Sure. So on just a purely biblical standpoint, you know, the land of Israel is integral to the Jewish faith. You know, Mm -hmm. even in Jewish law, there are so many laws and rituals that they cannot partake in if they are outside of the land of Israel. So it is ingrained in. And if you read the Bible, you know, the Old Testament, it it talks about the land of Israel. It talks about Abram going there, Moses re-entering the land and all these things. Um, or not entering the land. (laughs) Um, and you know for Jerusalem has always been the center of Jewish life. It's where they faced pray. But to kind of fast forward to two aspects, one, look, if you look at Christian history, Jesus, John the Baptist, Mary, the disciples, most of the, the disciples, they were all Jewish. Yeah, they all that is where our faith started. You know you look right. at the stories of the Bible when you're in Israel, like we, it was in the, it's in the documentary. We walk along a road, which was uh, uncovered in the city of David, which 100%, there is no doubt that Jesus walked along that road. There's, there's mm. no, there's no doubt. And the important thing to remember is this Christianity started in the Middle East. And what we have seen in the last decade is some of the most historic Christian communities, historic Christian architecture completely destroyed by islamist groups right in israel not the case every side is protected most of them are run by christian groups and the you know that alone is something which is incredible to me one the, the christian community is growing in israel where everywhere else in the middle east has been decimated and christian yeah the very core of christian heritage is preserved because you know you the sites in syria or iraq are gone like there is not going to be an opportunity where you can take your kids or your grandkids to see, you know, these early Christian communities where they thrived in Nineveh, that they're gone. In Israel, not the case. And that could have quite easily been different. I mean, you've seen religious sites under Palestinian authority control being vandalized and attacked and destroyed. But from an American perspective, and I think this is so important, we have no better ally. And 9-11 is a great reminder of that on 9-11 there were Palestinians celebrating in the streets on 9-11 2001 there was a video that I mean they would never do it now but at the time CNN showed of uh, Palestinians celebrating in the streets in Jerusalem is the only memorial to 9-11 which has the name of all the victims outside the United States you know Israel has said with us not just in 9-11 when there would be natural disasters and like you point out it is the only democracy because ultimately Free societies are better societies. You know, I mean, the Cold War was the biggest reminder of that. Here we had this empire which completely controlled its population, and we had the United States. And we triumphed because of free society. I mean, and Reagan, I think, said it best, and I'm paraphrasing, when he said, what we have over our enemies is in this country, we have unleashed the greatness of the human, the individual, more than any place on Earth. And when we have that freedom, of course, we thrive. It leads to innovation. It leads to so many great things. And on top of that, Israel is, I mean, Israel's in a tough neighborhood mm. and they stand on the front line of defending. We share the same threats, those same people. And, and this is a naivety I find in the United States at times the people who hate Israel and want to destroy Israel, they don't have any love for America. There's no it's not a one and done situation. And Israel stands on the front line of that. And Israel keeping those enemies in that side, on the other side of their border and defending themselves, keeps us a lot safer here. And then you can talk about intelligence sharing and all these things. And one of the other things I want to point out, we have allies in the Middle East. You know, we have we're allies with a lot of these monarchies and other regimes, and I'm not gonna comment on, on them right now. But Israel is an ally that never, has never in its whole existence, even when its existence was being threatened, has ever asked American troops to come and defend it. It's an ally. We, we, we have a lot of trade. They're, Israel uses military hardware, American military hardware, but it has never sought American troops to fight for it. It has always gone with the approach that we will defend ourselves by ourselves but we value our alliance with America because it is our greatest friend.
0: Yeah, it's so important uh, to point that out. And also, a lot of people have said something similar to this, but even just with Israel and Palestine, it's like if the Palestinians put all their weapons down today, there would be peace in the Middle East or peace in Israel today. But if right. the Israelis were to put all their weapons down today, they wouldn't exist tomorrow. And so that, that's the difference of what we see in, in terms of what's happening here. So it's very important to, to make sure that we have a, a good overall idea. And even as Americans, it's okay for us to pay attention to things that are going on outside of our own neighborhood. Now, you, right. you mentioned Irving earlier in this podcast, but obviously uh, the probably the most prominent personality of the, the entire thing, aside from just you, is Irving Roth. So he was actually sent to the Auschwitz death camp at the age of 14 during the Holocaust. And so the fact that he was just kind of walking around one day uh, is a pretty interesting thing for a lot of people. And again, you'll, you'll have to watch the documentary to get a better idea of who he is. But you two had a very unique uh, relationship and friendship that you were able to develop. So I guess, how did Irving get involved with this documentary project? And then talk to me a little bit about y'all's relationship. Obviously, as you mentioned earlier, he's no longer with us, but t- take me through that.
1: Uh, Irving had been working with the organization I now work for, Christians United for Israel, for a number of years. And in 2014, the organization reached out to me uh, when I moved to Canada and asked me to do a speaking tour in California on some of the most hostile campuses to Israel. Um, I had never dealt with Christians who support Israel before. It was it was something I didn't really understand, and also. If you spend any time in Europe, the UK, there are a lot of people who are Christian, but have never set foot in a church or even picked up a Bible or even own a Bible. So it, it was a very strange, okay, I'm not really sure what this is, but it was, I think it was February or March, you know, I just moved to Canada. It was like negative 40. I was like, eh, I can go to California for a week and be you know, of Holocaust survivor. It could be worse, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I did this speaking tour, met Irving, who You know, I learned had been speaking about his experiences for a long time. He uh, he saw the importance of educating the next generation, but also the the importance of showing through his experiences why Israel is important, why it's important for the Jewish people to have a homeland, and why it's so key. So Irving was incredibly dedicated to education and using his experiences to educate others, and we just hit it off. Like and you know, when Irving passed, like when anyone you know, who's really lived a remarkable life passes. People have a lot to say. And, you know, Irving wasn't a Holocaust survivor, but he was so much more. Like he was one of the, the funniest people I ever met. Like he had a great sense of humor. He was incredibly driven, had incredible energy. And, you know, that, that's one of the most, one of the things that really stands out even now about Irving. Yes, he was a survivor. Yes, he ended one horrific thing, but it didn't define who he was. You know, he was just this mm. very happy, content person who lived a very full life. And you know, I think a lot of people could learn from that because everybody is—we live in such a society now where nobody has any resilience. The most minor thing happens, and that's it. The world is—the uh, world is shutting down, and I need to take a day off to, like, you know, whatever. And it's just, yeah. So. See, I mean, having just hit it off, and our friendship just remained, and we did a lot of more events together, and you know, we stay in contact. So it kind of just, and we both have a very similar sense of humor, so it just worked.
0: Right. I mean, what what a unique relationship. You said a couple of things there, so um, I, I don't know if you use that with that word on purpose, but our our mission here at Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness. And we do that with content that provides spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. We talk about resilience all the time because everyone likes to focus on strength, but no matter what, right. strength will wane over time, whether it's physical, mental, or spiritual strength, it will wane. But the ability to bounce back, that's something that we're losing as a people because you're right. People will take a self-help day you know, from work Like if they stub their toe that morning and they just right. like, well, I just really need to kind of be with myself today and really kind of work through these feelings. But you said something about Irving that I thought was very important is- that when you hear someone that is a Holocaust survivor or a medal of honor winner that you, you mentioned earlier, that is the dominant thing about that person's life. Like when they're introduced anywhere, like when they go pick up a cup of coffee, like they should say a uh, Holocaust survivor, Irving Roth, like that's what they should say because that's such a dominant thing about you. But like, you know I'm so glad you said that because this whole time I'm in the whole time I'm watching the documentary, I'm just seeing Irving Roth, the Auschwitz survivor and thinking about like, that's not a cool thing, but it's like an unbelievably unique, mind blowing thing that that guy was just walking around, going to the grocery store and, you know, getting a little exercise. Like that is such a good thing for everybody in the audience to, to think about as well. Like even for us like I'm not, you know, the undaunted life, a man's podcast host. Like I'm so much more than that. Like I'm a husband and I'm a father of two and I'm a friend and I'm a son and I'm, I'm all these different things. And so I, I, that's just such a good word. I just wanted to kind of affirm you for saying that. I thought that that was so good. I know we're kind of rounding to a close here, but uh, one thing that wasn't really explicitly talked about in the documentary, but my understanding is, is that you did convert to Christianity at some yeah. point during this entire process. Is that correct?
1: Right, that's
0: right. Okay. So, so take me through that because dumb Westerners, especially dumb Western conservative Christians, they have no idea what that means because we all have our come to Jesus experience where, you know, it was at church camp or it was, you know, at want or it was at vacation Bible school or something like that. And that's just, we were one thing. And then we became a Christian. We got dunked in some water and then we got, you know, extra things to do at church now, but like right. for you and for being a Muslim, That is a decision to basically turn off your entire identity because your faith and and your ethnicity and your identity are all wrapped into one and your family sprinkled over the top of that as well. And if you're in a Muslim family, especially a Middle Eastern Muslim family, and then you convert to Christianity... in in large part you don't really have that family anymore and so this isn't just turning to jesus because you know i'm thinking he might help my business or because you know you actually did genuinely accept the truth of the gospel so take me through that conversion experience what was it for you and you know talk to me about the family aspect as well i know it had to that had to be rough and still has to be rough
1: yeah so i'll back up a little bit so i went to israel 2007 I come back and abandon faith altogether because I I am kind of like I was lied to about this, so this is all this is all crap essentially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I I would say you know I was an atheist at the time, and so for me, if I believe something or care about something, I want to learn more about it, and so I started reading more about not atheism, but books by prominent atheist writers, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, all these guys. And kind of the overwhelming thing that stood out to me was the, this is some of the most immature drivel I've ever read. <laughs> Cause basically the, it is here's it's this, nonsense. This, here's the core of their argument. Okay. There's no proof of God. And if you believe in God, you're stupid. That's, that's oh. essentially it. Yeah. I was like, okay, cool. Not the, the definitive proof I was looking for, but fine. So I started, and look, just for me, logically, on a totally logical basis, like I look out of my window and there are trees, there's the sky. I can't really fathom that that just happened. I mean, if you've ever bought furniture <laughs> right. from Ikea, it doesn't just make itself. It's, it's a lot of hard right. work. I mean, it's, right. so I started to re-engage with faith and try and figure out, okay, I believe there is a God, but who who really, who's got who's got this right, basically? So I look at different faiths, you know, Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, all the cool things that are out there, you know, all, all the kind of the cool, you know, look at all these new age kind of all the, all the, the white people who don't shower are doing all those kind of things. Um, and then I, I looked at Islam because look, you know, 20 plus years of being steeped in Islam, knowing so much about the faith, I was trying to find a way that maybe that could work. And I just couldn't reconcile it. I couldn't reconcile it with what I believed on a personal basis. And just, it, did, I just couldn't reconcile that that was the truth. Mm. Um Judaism appealed. Again, there's a, a lot, there are parallels, not parallels, there's a lot that Islam has taken from Judaism. So that resonated also and having spent time in Israel. Uh, but I really wasn't sure. A Christianity, I didn't even consider. It was not even, again, growing up in the UK, it's just not, the term Christian doesn't really mean anything. It hmm. means that somewhere somewhere in your family became a Christian, so you just identify as a Christian. It doesn't really mean anything, okay. in my experience. Um, so I moved fast forward, I moved to Canada, and, and now I'm starting to look at faith more deeply because my concern was in the UK to convert out of Islam, which I knew was going to happen, it's a death sentence, and the UK is not as safe as the US or Canada, for that matter. So I'm looking at it more in Canada now, really, and I'm leaning very heavily towards Judaism. Then I get invited to the speaking tour with Christian United for Israel. We do that, and I meet Christians for the first time, like people who live by their faith, people who little things like pray before every meal, who you know know the Bible and have a sense of what is biblically right and wrong. So that was really interesting for me. Uh, and it, it was inspiring, but not it didn't change anything. I stayed you know, friends with people at the organization. And then I went to their conference uh, to speak and fell in love with the organization, wanted to work for them. I literally said, I went, look, I want to work for you guys. And they were like, well, look, there's a few issues. You don't live in the US. You aren't Christian, but it's a conversation we can have. Fast forward a few months later, they hired me, uh, rather out of the blue, and I joked at the time, I said, look, you know, this this is great and all, but this isn't going to be he eventually comes to Jesus thing. So like, if that's on your radar, it's not going to be a thing. Uh, And then I came to Jesus, and it happened in the most unexpected way. I was in uh, Arizona for an event, couldn't sleep, started reading the Bible, super cliche. And I'm like, literally, I'm like, what in? God's name, what am I doing? Like I'm reading the Bible yeah. in a hotel room at 3 a.m. This is ridiculous. Yeah. So I went and decided to work out uh, Had an early flight that morning. And there was a uh, flight delay, I think it was. But I had a huge connect, a long connection, or it was a flight delay. And I ended up sitting at this table waiting with a coffee for a few hours. And this guy sits down, like, do you mind if I sit here? I'm like, dude, whatever. Happened to be a missionary on his way to the Balkans. And literally over the next week, like these things keep happening. And I just came to realize, i not even a realization, I just, in my apartment in Winnipeg, Canada, I was like, okay, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Like it was a kind of, almost out of frustration. Like, is this what I'm meant to do? <laughs> right. And like, and just honestly, cliche as this sounds, actually, not even, you know, I've always been one of those people who's like, believe what you want to believe, but keep it in church, dude. The minute I accepted Jesus, I was like, Crap, I got to tell everyone about this. Like, do, you, do people not know what yeah. this is like? Right. So, so yeah, and that yeah, that was that and it's look, faith is a struggle because you're trying to get better every day and you deal with stupid people every day. Like <laughs> challenges. Yep. Um mm-hmm. but no, I I'm in Bible school at the moment because I want to know more. I want to dig as deep as possible and yeah, that's where we are.
0: Dude, that I'm so glad you went into all that detail because I mean, you could look at his coincidence but like that was that was God calling you home that that, that was right. you know <laughs> that was the Holy Spirit. That was a whole Godhead coming after you. And I mean, you, you hear these stories about Muslims in the Middle East converting because Jesus is visiting them in their dreams. And that's not something that we really experience here in the U.S. as much. And so it's like, you know, God will not be denied. Like his his gospel will spread and, and he is in charge of all of that. And that's just that's just such a great story. But man, we, we've gone everywhere in this conversation. There's so much more to talk about. Maybe we can have you back on in the future and talk a little bit more about what you're working on now. But for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your? Just?
1: Uh actually I do want to touch on one thing because you mentioned it. So with the yeah. dreams thing, I think that is so cool. So I don't know mm. if you know this. In Islam, that it's dreams are incredibly important because there is a saying attributed to Muhammad or maybe in the Quran, blanking, that if you have a dream and there is a prophet in it and and Muslims see Jesus as a prophet, it is that person because Satan cannot imitate the prophets. So when Muslims mm-hmm. see Jesus in a dream, it's talking to them in a language that, okay, this is this is Jesus. This must yeah. be the truth. So I just I for me, I mean, I think that's amazing. Like it's just amazing what, what God can do and how He well, speaks to people and meets you, them where they're at.
0: Yeah, when you hear about churches growing in Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and all these places, it's just like the, these are not like Oklahoma, where I can't right. like trip and fall and not land in a church. Like, you know, it's just one right. of those things. Like, yeah, I mean, the the, the dream stuff is, is absolutely mind blowing.
1: Uh, yeah. And yeah, I just, one thing I would ask everyone, don't take what you have for granted. And I mean that from a faith perspective and as Americans, because I think if you're born here or you've grown up, it's so easy to take it for granted because it just is. But man, if, If you were fortunate to be born a Christian, if you were fortunate to come to Jesus in life, don't ever take that for granted because you have something that, I mean, there are people who are risking their lives to have and you've got to ask why, like there's something there. If people are willing to risk everything for it, there is something there. And yeah, on the second part of that, like don't, we're very fortunate to be in the United States. And I'm not talking from just the perspective of it's a free country and X, Y, and Z. No, this country represents something. And yes, look, politicians will twist and turn and make it represent something else. But it is, this country is important, I think, globally, because what we do and what we represent has been a light to so many nations and so many oppressed communities since our very founding. And that's why when you see protests in Hong Kong, they're waving the American flag. Uh, so again, don't forget that it's, it's important and we all have an important part to play.
0: That's such a great word. And, and right. I mean, I've got multiple Bibles on my phone. I've got four sitting right here to my right. I have got the internet where I can look at that. There are literally people risking their lives in the middle East and in Asia and other places just to get their hands on, a few pages of the Bible, like it's right. it's an absolutely incredible thing that we should not lose sight of. Kasim fees. thank you so much for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast.
1: Thank you, it's been awesome.
0: There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Kasim Hafiz, but before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to the documentary, Never Again, so you guys can go and check that out. And also a link to Christians United for Israel. That's the organization that made this documentary. That's who Kasim works for. It's a great organization to check out. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah